Well, good morning. This morning we're going to talk about the ecclesia grows out of Acts chapter 8, verses 18 through 40. And specifically, we're talking about the growth of the ecclesia outside of Jerusalem into Samaria and into the Gentile world. So this is the growth of the ecclesia in terms of ethnicity. Acts chapter 1, verse 8 is the outline of the book of Acts. The text says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses, my martyrs in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Now, this was spoken by Jesus to his apostles, but as we see in the book of Acts, the application of this goes beyond the apostle to the disciples of the apostles. In fact, the ones that are going to actually fulfill the part of this, that is taking the witness of Jesus being the Christ into Samaria and the end of the earth would actually be not the apostles, but marketplace men who were disciples of the apostles. The first seven chapters focus on the establishment of the ecclesia in the book of Acts in Jerusalem based on the foundation of the Old Testament scripture. Signs and wonders were used to validate the person and work of the Lord Jesus and his seminal message. His followers can know with certainty that Jesus was and is both Lord and Christ. That was the message. That was the gospel. The response to this message was also clear and certain. Those who received it repented and displayed faith in the truth about Jesus. They received forgiveness of sins something that the Mosaic law could never accomplish because of their state of total depravity. And they received the indwelling presence and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. The evidence of this was their obedience to the faith. Now, please note that today we think the evidence that someone has received Christ is their profession of faith. That's not the greatest evidence. The great evidence is their obedience to the faith. Christianity is a lifestyle of walking in the will and ways of God with increasing capacity to do that. Those who experienced this reality united together with joy. They were devoted to the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread and prayers. The apostles' doctrine was a Christ-centric explanation of the Old Testament scripture, God's plan of redemption, and the work of the Holy Spirit to build Jesus' ecclesia. Fellowship was about community, about the truth of Jesus that produced unity and wisdom on how to utilize resources such as money to serve the will of God. Breaking of bread intimated the Christ-centric lifestyle that dominated the Christian community and was expressed in regular gatherings of the community to gratefully remember the life and work of Jesus. And prayer was the regular expression of, of praise, rejoicing, and thanksgiving to God for the forgiveness of sins and the gift of life. So these four things were what they were devoted to. Apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. This is what they meant to do. And by the way, their meetings were vetted. Unlike today, we have unvetted meetings where anyone can come in, and we use our meetings for evangelism. They didn't primarily use their meetings for evangelism. They used them to build up the body of Christ. That is to build the quality of disciples, take people deep in Christ. 
We don't do that today, which is probably one of the reasons we're getting such poor fruit today. The life of the ecclesia was startling to the Jews in Jerusalem that were not part of it. It was particularly startling to the leaders who jealously opposed the ecclesia. This led to the persecution that in time became so severe that the ecclesia was dispersed. The dispersion would be used and was used by God to fulfill Acts 1.8. There's no record of how the ecclesia fulfilled Acts 1.8 in Judea. But chapter 8 records the fulfillment in Samaria and to the Gentiles. In chapter 8, there is a contrast of two types of people. There is a Samaritan, a magician named Simon, and a Gentile Ethiopian treasurer. The former was a self-made, self-proclaimed person, and the latter was a high government official. Both displayed humility, though the magician had to be rebuked by Peter after he supposedly had come to Christ. That's an interesting part of the story as well. Acts 8, chapter 1 through 17 recorded the dispersion of the ecclesia in Samaria. Interestingly, the dispersion followed the martyrdom of Stephen and then work of God through the dispersion was led by Philip. Both Stephen and Philip were marketplace leaders called to food distribution. They were not apostles. They were disciples of the apostles. The apostles' role in Acts 8 is supportive and affirmative. From this, one can see that through Acts 1-8, the apostles were directed, and it also, through that direction, it went to their disciples as well. In fact, it would be mostly fulfilled by the followers, not the apostles, directly. So let's take a look now at verses 18 through 25 of Acts chapter 8, reading on. When Simon saw that the Spirit, referring to the Holy Spirit, was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, He offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone I lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter told him, Now keep in mind, Simon has been baptized. He is included as part of the Christian community there in the city of Samaria, where Philip was the evangelist. And now Peter is turning to him, and now he's going to rebuke him. May your silver be destroyed with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. That's an interesting text because you see silver here now is equated to money scripturally. You have no part or share that is no allotted portion in this matter. This matter really is the word logos, which refers to this word because of your heart that's metaphorical heart, is not right, it's not straight and true before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, your heart's intent may be forgiven. This is a future tense referring to future judgment. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by wickedness. Pray to the Lord for me, Simon replied. Now, Simon responds well. He doesn't respond in pride and arrogance. He responds in humility here. He asks, pray for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. So after they have testified, that is, that is, they have solemnly affirmed, and that's what a witness is. Our, our witness is a martyr, someone who's willing to die to solemnly affirm the truth that Jesus is Lord in Christ. 
based on that truth, the Old Testament prophecies about the Christ were fulfilled in Jesus. He was the suffering servant who would die for the sins of the world. And so they spoke the word of the Lord, and then they traveled back to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Simon was an example of a person who was seeking self-glory, just like the participants in the Tower of Babel project in Genesis 11, who ceased to expand and populate the earth, which is what they were mandated to do according to the creation mandate. Rather, they sought to build a tower to reach to God as if they could. The tower was an attempt to connect with God, that is to basically make themselves acceptable with God based on their own works and was a monument for self-glory. Simon followed this example of self-promotion and self-glory. Simon, however, when he heard the word about Jesus, that he was both Lord and Christ, professed to believe in the good news of the kingdom of God and was baptized. But what really attracted Simon was the manifestation of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Luke did not reveal how the indwelling of the Holy Spirit was manifested. Many speculate that it was speaking in tongues, but that is pure speculation. We have no evidence of that. We have very little evidence that the indwelling of the Spirit is accompanied by speaking in tongues. We have some evidence that it may be, but we don't have any conclusive evidence that it always is. Simon's greedy rejection to observing the manifestation of the impartation of the Holy Spirit, excuse me, his greedy reaction to observing this, raised a question about the genuineness of his conversion. When Simon saw the impartation of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit conveyed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he wanted that authority. And by the word, that's the, uh, the actually the word there uh, is translated power, but the Greek word is the word exousia, which refers to authority. So he wanted the authority to be able to lay hands on people and impart the Holy Spirit, and he offered to pay for it. Well, you, could, you saw Simon Peter's response to Simon the magician. It was a very strong, quick response. There's no question that Simon Peter was not trying to be nicer than Jesus here. He was definitely in his face with truth. Simon's greedy reaction here uh, to observing the manifestation of the impartation of the Holy Spirit raised this genuine question about his conversion. Simon's heart was not right with God, though the text the text says that he believed the gospel of the kingdom of God and was baptized. So you have a prof- at least a profession, and the act of baptism was not sufficient for Peter. Peter said that he was poisoned by bitterness and bound by uprightness. He's talking to a person that has professed Christ and been baptized. Those are not things we would normally say to people. We're much nicer than that. Simon's heart issue caused Peter to question Simon's salvation and specifically the issue of the future forgiveness of his sins at the final judgment, which is the ultimate glorification. When we stand before the Lord and everyone is judged according to the works and we are too, our works will be inadequate, but our name will will be written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And that's why we will pass into eternity is because of the grace of God through Christ, not by our works. Simon's words and actions were not congruent with one who truly knows the Lord. This again raises the question, was he really regenerate or not? 
You know, I don't think Peter is assuming that he was. I think Peter is assuming, I don't know. You're acting like someone who is not regenerate. The dialogue between Peter and Simon may provide the answer. Peter's rebuke was, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, your heart's intent may be forgiven. Simon said, pray, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. Simon responded with humility, the humility of a regenerate person who lacked guidance to know the error of his sin. You see, once we're regenerated, we still have to be sanctified. Regeneration can be complete. And regeneration is an act of completeness. Once the Holy Spirit regenerates us, we are fully regenerated, but we are not fully sanctified. But the mark that somebody's in the process of being sanctified is that they're humble, submitted, and teachable. So if that is indeed the mark of the Holy Spirit at work in a person, then perhaps Simon was regenerate, but clearly not profoundly sanctified yet. And this could be a picture for all of us. We're probably all like Simon. We are, we come, we're lacking in our sanctification. We did keep in a state of humility and press into the Lord to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. In the closing verse of this section, Luke recorded the return of Peter and John to Jerusalem. After they solemnly affirmed the word of the Lord in Samaria, the good news of the kingdom of God, they traveled back to Jerusalem. As they went, they visited many Samaritan villages and announced the good news of the kingdom of God. You see, the kingdom of God is all about the king. Jesus is the king. He's the Lord, and that is the king. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah, the Savior, the sacrifice for the sins of the world. So this is the good news. It's around the kingdom and the message of the kingdom of God. And based on that truth, people can build lives now based on the reality that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. And lives built on that truth are lives that will enjoy the forgiveness of sins and the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit in them. Now going on to the last uh, a few verses here, Acts 8, 26 through 40. This is the first Gentile conversion. Many people think Cornelius was the first Gentile conversion. That is not correct. This is the first Gentile conversion here in Acts 8. So we actually had the fulfillment of Acts 1, 8, 8 here with this particular event. Because in Acts 1, 8, you will be my witnesses, my martyrs in Jerusalem and Judea, in Samaria and to the end of the earth which referred to the Gentiles. So here is a, an expression, a Gentile, a non-Jew, now is included in the ecclesia. So the text reads, at verse 26, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip. Now please note as we go through this, you're going to see Philip is going to get special revelation three times in this text. And each time it's expressed differently. So this is an angel of the Lord speaking to Philip. We don't know exactly how that happened, but we just know it did. Get up and go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is the desert road. So he got up and went. This, there was an Ethiopian man, a eunuch, and a high official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to worship in Jerusalem. Now, that trip from Ethiopia to Jerusalem was a long trip, probably took about 10 days on chariot, dusty, hot roads, and uh, that showed a lot of dedication. 
He was sitting in his chariot on his way home, which means he wasn't driving it. Someone else was driving it. It was apparently large enough to where he could sit. And he's reading the prophet Isaiah aloud. That's a great way to read. Many of us read and we don't read out loud, but read out loud so you hear yourself reading. The spirit told Philip, now this is the second example of specific revelation here. Specific revelation, just a reminder here to you, is that revelation that God provides to us in a specific situation, at a specific time, for a specific reason, to a specific person, for a specific purpose. It's not intended to be canonical. That is, it's not intended to be the way God's going to relate to everyone. It's communication of something you need to know in a specific situation. Jesus told us that he would use specific revelation. And he told us that specifically when you're arrested by, you know, on account of me and you have to give an account, don't worry what you're going to say because in that moment I'll tell you what to say. That's what specific revelation is. So the spirit tells Philip, go and join the chariot. So if an angel told him to go down to the road, he gets down there, he obviously sees this chariot. And I'm assuming the chariot is moving. It's not sitting still. So that suggests Peter had to run up to it and probably ran alongside it. So then it says, uh, the text says, go and join that chariot. And actually that word for join is an interesting word. It's, it's a word that means to be attached to, to be glued to. So go and join that chariot. When Philip ran up to it, he heard him read prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian eunuch said, well, how can I? unless someone guides me. So he invited Philip to sit, come up and sit with him. So I assume they stopped the chariot, let Philip climb aboard. And now the spirit, the scripture passage he was reading was this. So now he's going to read it aloud and Philip is going to listen with him. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb, he's silent before its shears. So he does not open his mouth in his humiliation. Justice was denied him. Who will describe his generation? for his life is taken from the earth. The eunuch said to Philip, I ask you, who is this prophet saying this about, himself or someone else? Philip proceeded to tell him the good news. Evangelizo is the word. The gospel, the gospel about Jesus beginning with that scripture. As they were traveling down the road, they came to some water. The eunuch said, look, there's water. What would keep me from being baptized? So he ordered the chariot to stop. And both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. That is, Philip baptized the eunuch. When they came up from the water, now here's the third example of specific revelation. The Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, snatched him, snatched him. Now, I just can't imagine what that was like and what the eunuch thought but clearly the eunuch was probably so excited that it didn't really matter. And the eunuch did not see him any longer, but he went away on his way rejoicing. Philip appeared in Azotus, and he, and he was traveling and preaching the gospel in all the towns until he came to Caesarea. An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip. How did he speak? Audible voice, dream, vision, thought, a visceral inspiration, these are examples of specific revelation from God through an angel, a messenger given to uh, for a specific 
purpose at a specific time to a specific person, specific context for a specific reason. No other worldview offers a personal God who gives specific revelation. Now keep in mind, specific revelation is one of three sources of revelation. There's first source of revelation, the greatest source of revelation, the canonical source of revelation is special revelation, which is the word of God, the scripture. Then there's general revelation found in creation. It's general in the sense it's available to all and specific is specific to an individual. So this is an example of that here. Now, Philip got, got to the road where the eunuch was traveling and we don't know exactly how he got there. In fact, we probably traveled about 30, 40 miles to get there. Um, it, we don't know if he ran, if he hitched a ride, or if the, if the, the spirit just transported him there, did a beam me up Scotty kind of thing. We don't know that. When Philip saw the chariot, the spirit again spoke to him. This time it wasn't through an angel. It appears that it was more directly. The spirit commanded him. In other words, there was as an imperative. This wasn't a, a suggestion. This was a command, go and join the chariot. He ran up and perhaps ran alongside. And as he ran alongside, he heard the man speaking. The Ethiopian man was the chief financial officer for the queen of Ethiopia. He was clearly very skilled, a very prominent man, and probably a very wealthy man. And he demonstrated a high view of scripture, both by his long trip to worship in Jerusalem. Why would he go all the way from Ethiopia to Jerusalem to worship if he didn't have a high view of scripture? And then he got a copy of scripture, which is not easy in those days. It was expensive, but he was committed to reading it, even though he didn't understand it. How many people have we run in today that will, and will say to you, when you ask them, do you read scripture? They'll say something like, well, no, I don't understand it. Well, this man was not letting the fact that he didn't understand it stop him. He was committed to reading scripture. This was a very, very clear demonstration of the spirit of God working in this man. Philip approached and probably running alongside the chariot, listened first, then ask a question. It's a great pattern for all of us. We ought to learn to listen first before we interact with others. The eunuch was reading Isaiah 53 verses seven through eight. And he knew that he needed a teacher to understand this text. How many, how many people today know they need a teacher to understand the word? So many people just want to read it for themselves, and which we should read it for themselves, but we also need godly men to teach us. So he invited Philip to join him in his chariot. The eunuch asked, who is this prophet talking about? And that just opened the door. From there on, Philip now began to explain the good news about the Lord Jesus beginning with Isaiah 53. What a great text, but it could have been any text. The point is everything in the Old Testament points to Christ if you have the eyes to see. So we don't know Philip's exact words or even have an outline of his teaching, but it was certainly the story of how the Old Testament revealed the impotency of mankind to self-save from the penalty of sin and death, that is total depravity. And it revealed that mankind desperately needed a savior and that, that Christ, the Messiah, the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah happened in Christ. And he is the one that God would use now to save mankind. The eunuch's heart was prepared by the Holy Spirit for the message, and he received it. That is, he believed it. And he had enough understanding of scripture 
that he knew the need for baptism as an acknowledgement of his regeneration and now new life in Christ. Philip was clearly persuaded of the genuineness of his regeneration by the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit, so he agreed to baptize the eunuch. The chapter concluded with Philip being carried away by the Spirit of the Lord, another encounter with the Spirit of the Lord. Now, this happened. how this happened was not revealed, but Philip appeared in a number of towns until he arrived at Caesarea, where he settled and became known as an evangelist, according to Acts 21, verse 8. This was also the residence of Cornelius, that is, uh, Caesarea was. And it's perhaps that Philip and Cornelius encountered each other. Uh, we don't know that. We don't have that role. We don't know those details of whether or not Philip played a role in helping Cornelius. The scripture silent on that. But we know in Acts 10, Peter will come to Cornelius. It's interesting that how when when the Holy Spirit wants to you know bring Cornelius to Christ, he could have used Philip, but instead he brought Philip. It, it brought uh, Peter instead to do it. He brought an apostle, not a disciple, the apostle to do that. So that's the, the text here. So I want to take uh, just a moment and make a comment on Scripture. Uh, I want to talk about transcendent truth. Because both the magician, Simon the magician, and the eunuch are examples of men who had a very high view of Scripture and transcendent truth, particularly the eunuch. The eunuch was a societal leader among the Gentiles, as intimated by his prominent position. Though among the elite of his day, he was not a humanist because humanists believe there is no transcendent truth. Now, this man believed in transcendent truth. He believed in a higher authority, a being beyond mankind and recognized the existence of truth beyond human comprehension. This truth regulated his life. It so regulated his life that he was willing to travel a long distance to seek this truth. The distance between Ethiopia and Jerusalem was about 2,600 miles or 4,200 kilometers. That would take about 85 hours to travel if you travel about 30 miles an hour or about 10 days by chariot in a hot, dusty, you know, bumpy road. Not a pleasant experience, but he was so committed to this transcendent truth that he was willing to sacrifice. He would, he would pay the price to, to make the trip, both in terms of time and energy and money. Furthermore, the eunuch was able to obtain a copy of the text of Isaiah 53. That's stunning. That, you don't, that would not be easy to do. That cost him a lot of money. And he read it intently, musing over its meaning while riding in a chariot on a dusty, bumpy, and probably hot road, returning on his return trip to Ethiopia. He even invites a stranger to join him in the chariot as he's reading Isaiah 53. Some way or another, he knew the stranger could explain the text, and he needed somebody to explain this to him. Oh, if we had people today were so hungry for understanding Scripture and the meaning of Scripture that they would do virtually anything to find the people that could help them understand the truth. But yet we don't have people hungry like this, or at least we don't seem to find them very easily. I'm sure they're out there. They're just few and far between. His view of Scripture was so profound, that is, the eunuch's view of Scripture was so profound that even his exalted position did not block him from being humble, submitted, and teachable. This man clearly recognized the reality of a transcendent God 
who is the source of transcendent truth that governs all reality and sought to understand and be regulated by this truth. Accordingly, he had a high view of the authority of Scripture as revelation of transcendent truth. Sadly, today, the pattern of mankind is so increasingly to deny transcendent truth and instead to seek to be governed by human constructs, fantasies and delusions, man-made ideas, man-made ideology. This erroneous thinking, this distorted thinking, this deranged thinking was has impacted all phases of life in our society today, science, education, public policy, economics, social norms, etc. And all of this will end in failure because it will prove to be false. The only way to live in God's universe correctly, wisely, is to submit to him, his will and his ways, which emanate from his transcendent truth. This requires a high view of scripture as God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible revelation to us. Scripture is God's gift to mankind as the best source of revealed transcendent truth that defines all of reality and the norms of reality and should guide us in life. And as such, as demonstrated by the story of the eunuch, the Spirit of God sends his agents to us to teach us how to understand Scripture so that we can properly be regulated by transcendent truth. Now, a word of application. Transcendent absolute truth. Writing on the state of education in one of his daily podcasts, the redoubtable Albert Moeller wrote that students today want to be affirmed rather than taught. Rather than teaching timeless universal principles of wisdom and knowledge, education has morphed into a social exercise seeking to protect students from being challenged with truth. The priority in education has increasingly focused on the emotional state and well-being of the students. No longer do students want to hear discussion and debate about competing ideas, seeking to hone their intellectual skills to discover truth. They want to feel good, which means to not be challenged or required to engage in critical thinking. The root of this regression in academic rigor is the denial of God, because to deny transcendent truth is to deny the source of transcendent truth. Given the global rise of atheism over the last 220 years, the denial of transcendent truth is not surprising. If there is no transcendent God, there is no transcendent absolute truth. Therefore, truth is simply a human construct. Each person is the determiner of truth for himself or herself. This is called relativism. If the epistemology of the world is increasingly given over to relativism, what is the purpose of education? Historically, one of the axioms of education was belief in the existence of transcendent absolute truth from God, who is the creator and sustainer of life. Furthermore, in the Western world, it was assumed that the source of transcendent absolute truth was the God of a Christian worldview. This God revealed his transcendent absolute truth in both scripture and creation. Consequently, former educa formal education was historically developed by Christians. As the cultures of the world rejected a Christian worldview, it is not surprising that the cultures reject the premise of transcendent absolute truth. Consequently, popular educational philosophies based on relativism, which a priori precludes the existence of transcendent absolute truth. 
Acts 8 records the story of two first-century people who were not like 21st-century relativists. They believed in transcendent, absolute truth. Simon and the eunuch, though different socially and ethnically, were not humanist. They embraced transcendent truth as evidenced by their willingness to submit to this truth. When confronted with the truth of his depraved condition before God as revealed in his wrong motives, Simon humbled himself and asked the apostle Peter to intercede for him, seeking mercy and forgiveness from God. Likewise, the eunuch, though a prominent and probably wealthy political leader, humbled himself by seeking to worship the God of the Bible and by submitting to the truth of the Bible, which he clearly viewed as authoritative. When anyone honestly looks at creation, Romans 1 explains that there is an irrefutable revelation of God in creation that cannot be denied. This revelation is cogent. Those who deny it are deceived and know they are deceived. Denial of the transcendent absolute truth of God in creation is willful deception. It is suppressing the truth, clear revelation of God in creation. This deception is systematic. It's systemic, rather, globally today. The consequences will be judgment, as noted in Romans 1, manifested by deranged thinking and sexual immorality, such as homosexuality. Currently, the denial of God and his transcendent absolute truth is so pervasive that deceived mankind is attempting to redefine reality based on relativism. Perhaps more startling than any other time in history, we are living in a relativistic state. Consequently, unlike the first century, citizens such as Simon and the Ethiopian eunuch who tra embraced transcendent absolute truth, the citizens of the world today are regressing into relativism under the euphemism of progressivism. This is deranged thinking, which is part of the judgment of God on those who suppress the transcendent absolute truth of the transcendent absolute God of scripture and creation. Both Simon and the magician and the Ethiopian eunuch, eunuch, excuse me, Ethiopian eunuch displayed more wisdom than the so-called progressives today because they did not reject the revelation of God. This reveals the progressives. The progressives of today are not what they claim to be. They are not progressive. They're actually regressive. They're going backwards because they are disconnecting from truth. And this must be exposed for what it is. And they must be exposed for what they are, deceived. May the Christians alive today have the grace to shine the light of truth in the darkness of deception that is rising in the world today. May we be so committed to the absolute transcendent truth revealed in the word of God and in creation and so willing to re be regulated by that truth and may we refuse relativism and refuse the pseudo-progressivism and may we embrace true submission to the will and ways of God for the glory of God in Jesus' name, amen.